0: there thanks for tuning in to St John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more go to cciw.church.
1: The first reading is from Proverbs chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. My child if you accept my words and treasure up my commandments within you Making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. If you indeed cry out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For God gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk blamelessly, guarding the paths of justice and preserving the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Prudence will watch over you and understanding will guard you. The second reading is from Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15, um, going through to chapter 2, verse 5. And that's on page 956 of the Red Pew Bibles. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have the first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. I am now rejoicing my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. For I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, Yet I am with you in spirit, and I rejoice to see your morale and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord.
0: What a banger of a passage, hey? Um, I should just get down, really? There's just how much, you know, you could spend months, really, just preaching through that first section that we read uh, from Colossians just now, um, uh, 15, 1 to, uh, sorry, 1, 15 to 20, the image of the invisible God. Glory! So I'm just going to get out of the way. That'll do. It feels a little bit like that, to be honest, um, uh, but we want to dig into it and we want to see why it is that God has given us this word this evening. And so when you join me, we're going to pray that God will help us to do exactly that. Father, thank you so much uh, for your word to us. Uh, thank you that you uh, long to be known. And so you you show us yourself, you you tell us about yourself in your word in the scriptures. Father, we thank you that there we meet the Lord Jesus, uh, the risen and reigning King, the one who went to the cross for us uh, to reconcile the world to himself. Father, we pray that that as we delve into this word together this evening, as we've had it read for us as we unpack it together now, that you'd be at work in our hearts by your spirit, that we might see Jesus more and more clearly, and so live lives to your honor and glory. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, here's a question for you. What do you need what do you need in order to live well? Think that over in your own mind uh, for a moment, and I want you to kind of just let your own, like your instinctive answer kind of rise up to the surface. What comes first into your head when you hear that question? What do you need in order to live well? Now, don't be cute about it. Everyone knows that there's like a pious Christian-y kind of answer, right, that that you're supposed to say when you're asked a question like that. And we all know what everyone would say if I asked you, I answered that question out loud, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that's a a good answer, right? It's true. But what I want you to do actually is just to take a moment and just really you know, think what in your heart of hearts, what's your instinct, where do you go when you ask that question, what do you need to live well? What do you need in order to live well? So lots of answers to that question uh, given in the world around us and uh, the answers that you, that you naturally give that you've just been kind of thinking in your own mind and heart now, uh, they're probably largely shaped by your own personal history and the culture in which you live. You're probably not that unique, sorry to say, Probably actually your answer to that question is pretty similar to lots of the people sitting around you. Um, here's it, kind of in the inner west of Sydney um, what, it might, what it might be. In order to live well in somewhere like the inner west of Sydney, you might say, I need a decent education. I need a job that pays well enough that that actually if I have kids one day, they can also have a decent education. I need enough money left over that I can be somewhat engaged with current affairs and the arts and good food And, of course, I need a decent social life as well. I need engaging and interesting friends who will provide stimulating conversation as long as it's basically the same positions that I hold on stuff and will support me in all of my endeavours to further myself and my career. Maybe most importantly of all, what what I need in order to live well is a house of my own or at least a house that the bank can own on my behalf for the foreseeable future. Something like that uh, is, I think, for many people, the kind of inner-west vision of living life well, of a full life, of the good life. To live life well, to have the good life, uh, to know what life looks like and how to, how to get that kind of life, the Bible calls that wisdom. When the Bible speaks about wisdom, that's what it's getting at. How do I, what do I need to know and how do I actually live life in such a way that it's going to turn out the way I want it to, that it's going to turn out right, that it'll be good and full, Well, I'll be able to look back on it actually and say, that was a life well lived. You get a bit of a picture of it in the first reading that we had from the book of Proverbs. True wisdom uh, shields the blameless and guards the paths of justice. It will lead you into every good path. Isn't that a beautiful little phrase? It will leave you into, lead you into every good path. Wisdom is understanding how to live in such a way that you will have a good and full life that one day you can look back on and say, that's how life should be. That was well lived. Here in this section of the letter to the Colossians, uh, which we uh, began uh, working through last week, uh, Paul tells us exactly what we need in order to have that kind of life, full, overflowing, full of joy, good, well-lived life. He tells us that is where we can find wisdom. And he tells us very directly in uh, one of the very last lines of the passage that Hannah's just read for us, chapter 2, verse 3. In him, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus, Paul says, we find everything we need in order to live well in the world. Now, why is he talking about this and uh, and why is it that he kind of leads us there through the long section that we've read this evening? Uh, It seems that Paul's worried that the Christians in the city of Colossae might be shortchanging themselves actually when it comes to following Jesus. They're being tempted to go out and look for wisdom uh, about how to live in other places. Uh, Throughout the rest of the letter, he's going to warn them against uh, kinds of things like this. He talks about empty philosophy. He talks about human traditions that seek to supplement Jesus. Special rules, special festivals, special knowledge. Uh, Paul's talking about a kind of uh, Jesus plus religion, if you like. You've got Jesus, that's good, but to really live well, you need to just add this extra thing. Uh, His purpose in this letter is to say, no, none of that's necessary. You don't need to add anything to Jesus. If you have Jesus, then you already have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What more could you possibly need? And so before we get back into into the text this evening, let's circle back to that opening question. What do you need in order to live well? It may be that your uh, instinctive answer was something in addition to Jesus, you see. That's why I was asking you not to be too cute about it, to really actually answer the question. It might even be something from that little sketch that I tried to give of what the inner west says you need for a good life and for a full life. It might be that there are times when you really do think to yourself, I love Jesus, I love being a Christian, and that's all well and good, but really to have the good and full life that I want, there's just something more that I need. If that's so, then the message of this passage, the message of this letter is for you. You need to hear this. And what you actually need really in order to get this is a bigger vision of who Jesus is. So that as your vision of Jesus grows, you'll be able to find and throw yourselves more and more into the unending depths of wisdom that lie hidden in him. Why am I talking all about this right at the top of the sermon here uh, in the introduction? It's because that's precisely why Paul gives the Colossians that famous poem that begins our section for today. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's a famous passage, and there's no way we're going to be able to unpack uh, all of its riches today, but the purpose for which it's given to us here in this letter of the Colossians is to expand our vision of who the Lord Jesus is, so that we might learn to find true wisdom and true life in him and nowhere else. And so as we unpack this uh, together this evening, uh, we're going to see uh, three things about wisdom. there will be our three points for this evening. You'll see them on the screen. Uh, Firstly, the source of wisdom. Secondly, the effectiveness of wisdom. And finally, the shape of wisdom. Point one, the source of wisdom. I've got it in my notes here. What a banger of a passage. I've already said that, but it's worth saying again. I mean, the glories of Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Uh, this poem uh, is an incredibly beautiful. It's a theologically rich portrait of, of who Jesus is and why he matters for our world. Uh, here, to use the language that Paul uses near the end of the passage that we've already picked up on, here is a picture of the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. This one, this Jesus. So as we start, let's take a a brief uh, kind of walk through the poem itself before uh, just make a couple of observations about some of the implications of that for us. The poem tells us two basic things. It says that Jesus is supreme and that Jesus is sufficient. Firstly, he's supreme in that first half of the poem. Let me read it for you again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. Uh, The first thing we learn here is that Jesus is supreme in creation. He's the image of the invisible God. Uh, It echoes the way in which humanity at the very beginning was created by God in the image and likeness of God. Uh, An image is supposed to represent something, you see, and the task of representing God in and to his creation is uh, given to human beings. Uh, what does that actually mean? Uh, I mean, again, there's a whole sermon series to, you know, to dig into what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. But as most basic, here's what it is. It's that if you run into another human person, have any of you run into another human person today? And let me see if this was your experience. When you run into another human person made in God's image, you're supposed to go, hang on a second, you look really familiar Ah, who is it? There's someone, I'm just trying to remember who it is right on the tip of my tongue, there's someone who you really remind me of. Ah, who is it? It's just, oh, that's right, you remind me of God. That's how it's supposed to work, right? That's what it means to image God and his world. supposed to reflect his likeness, his character. You might say that to someone at, um, at supper tonight, if you really want to encourage them. Oh, that's right, you just remind me so much of God. Wouldn't that be a nice way to encourage someone? That's what it means to be in God's image. Now, of course, it's fair to say and pretty obvious that we've made a massive mess of it, haven't we, of bearing God's image in the world and there's all kinds of implications, all kinds of tragedies in our world as a result of that. But Jesus bears that image perfectly. He's not just an image created in the image and likeness of God. He's the image. And the emphasis here is on how when we look at him, we see who God really is perfectly. The invisible God is made visible in Jesus. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He's also the firstborn of creation. Uh, the firstborn is a, is a way of saying two different things at the same time. Really? Clever when you can do that, and Paul does this kind of thing all the time. He's a crazy person. Uh, he's saying two different things uh, at the same time. Firstly, that Jesus is uh, the source of creation, but also that he's the heir to all the riches of creation he's the one through whom it all comes into being he's also the one who's the heir to all the riches of creation he's the source of creation in that everything that exists was made through him and he's the heir of creation in that everything exists was ma- uh, that exists was made for him he's the one through whom god created the entire universe and crafted it and brought it into being and he's the one to whom it all belongs Uh, Now, already when you start to build this picture, uh, poetic as it is, uh, metaphorical as it is, but this beautiful picture of who Jesus is and his relevance, why it matters to us, already you might be starting to see how it is that Jesus is related to wisdom. Because if you want to know how to live well in the world, surely the place to go is back to the source, right? The one who made it in the first place. The one who owns it. The one who directs it. Surely he has wisdom for how to live well in this world. We'll come back to that, Uh, but Paul continues. uh, Verse uh, 18, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. What this verse uh, tells us is that uh, while Jesus is supreme in creation, he's also supreme in new creation. Uh, Just as he was the source of creation in the beginning, so he's the head and source uh, of the church that is his body. The firstborn of creation is also the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of the new creation. As the first one resurrected from death to new life, Jesus is the template for the new humanity that's represented in the church. He's not just the one through whom God made everything in the first place, he's also the one through whom God is remaking everything, including you and me, as we trust in him. He made it, and even though we've made a massive mess of it, he's remaking it using that same power that brought the universe into being in the very beginning. That's the first thing this poem tells us about Jesus. He's supreme in creation and in new creation. And secondly, it tells us that he's also sufficient. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's a bunch of sermons and books and stuff right there as well. Again, just to unpack that verse. I've got to just breeze right past it for the moment. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. What this is telling us is that Jesus is sufficient for us. He is everything that we need because the fullness of God himself dwells in him. He can be for us everything that we need him to be, and he can also do for us everything that we need to have done for us. Uh, He's the one through whom God has made a way for the whole creation to be brought back into alignment with the wisdom that he made the world with in the first place. Through the blood of his cross, the one who made everything has begun to remake everything. What God's image bearers have broken, his true image has put right. He's sufficient for us. Uh, Look, we could go on plumbing the depths of this little passage. Um, Indeed, whole books have been written about it, whole series of sermons have been done on it. Maybe sometime we'll just do a whole series of sermons just on this little poem. Uh, But what I want to do for us now, just after that brief kind of run through, is just to draw out two implications in particular that I think we need to pay attention to here. Uh, The first is that true wisdom is not a set of principles. It's not a set of rules. It's not an educational curriculum. True wisdom is a person. True wisdom is a person. Where are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden? In Him, in Jesus, in this one through whom all things were made and for whom all things were made and who remakes the world by the blood of His cross. And that means that to find true wisdom, actually, it's not about knowing more stuff. It's not even about knowing more stuff about Jesus. Instead, what you need is to know Jesus, to know Him. True wisdom is personal knowledge of the person who is wisdom embodied. As Paul writes uh, elsewhere, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Uh, one thing that means for us, just one little implication, as a bit of an aside, uh, really, I'm just going to jump up and down about it for a moment, though, because I think it's really important. One of the implications of this for us, that the w- true wisdom is a person, that is Jesus, that you need to get to know him in order to have true wisdom, is that actually reading the Gospels matters a lot. Uh, To get the wisdom to live life well, for life to be full and good, you need to see the image of the invisible God living that out in person. The one in whom all the fullness of God dwells, walking around our dusty earth, showing you what that looks like when it's put into practice in a human life. You need to see the life of wisdom in person. And so I just want to put the challenge out to you. Whatever else you're reading in your regular time in the scriptures, you should be reading the Gospels a lot. You should go back to them often. Because the Gospels are actually the place where you read the stories of Jesus and see the wisdom of God worked out in a human life and get to know that wisdom personally. So that's the first implication I want uh, us to know, that wisdom isn't a set of principles, wisdom is a person. The second implication that I want to draw our attention to uh, is really actually the main point that Paul's making with this poem and really with the whole letter. I'm going to paraphrase Paul, he hasn't put it quite like this, but here really is what it's all about. You'd be super nuts to go looking for wisdom anywhere else, like just seriously, you'd be nuts to look for wisdom anywhere other than in him, anywhere other than in this person. Jesus is supreme in creation and in new creation and he's sufficient for everything we need him to be for us and to do for us. He's both creator and redeemer. And as creator, he has the knowledge and the power to provide true wisdom. And as redeemer, he's shown us that he has the love to use that knowledge and power to set things right. That means that you don't need Jesus plus. If you have Jesus, you don't need anything else. There's no more to get. You have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so the challenge of this whole letter really is, as we lift our gaze to the glorious one, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, is don't be tempted to look beyond him. Don't be tempted to add to him in some effort to try and actually get more of the good life. All that actually will do in practice is to diminish Jesus in your heart and therefore diminish your wisdom and your ability to live life the way that God has intended it. Don't go adding more to Jesus but it's really important to say at the same time I think that that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as wisdom or knowledge to be found outside the scriptures, outside Christian books, outside sermons. I know that you just go to my sermons for wisdom, that's that's the only place that you really go to look for wisdom is my sermons, right? I get that, I understand and I'm not complaining. But look, there's actually wisdom in other places, right? There is wisdom, there is knowledge, there is truth outside of the world of the church and the scriptures. Uh, When I say don't look for wisdom beyond Jesus, it isn't some kind of code for like, we don't need science because we have the Bible. Silly. That's not what we're talking about. And actually, the very fact that all things have been made through him and for him means that there's plenty of wisdom out there in the world and that somehow it's actually all about him. The challenge for us, rather, as followers of Jesus, is to let him shape how we receive and appropriate all the wisdom and knowledge that we pick up from other sources. When we skipped through the poem pretty briefly just now, um, I left out verse 17, which is because I want to talk about it here instead. I think it's actually really vital for this question of how we relate to all the other knowledge that's around us in the world. And it's one of my favourite verses in the whole Scriptures, actually. I love, I love this verse, particularly the second half of it. Here it is, verse 17. He himself is before all things... And in him, all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. Now, on one level, that's speaking about the way that Jesus, as the Creator, not only made everything in the beginning, but sustains it in the present. The same power by which he made the world continues to keep the world operating. If Jesus decided not to anymore, the whole thing would just vanish, I guess. I don't even know. He sustains the world moment to moment, he keeps it kind of existing. But this verse is actually telling us something even deeper than that. It's telling us that everything in the entire universe finds its coherence in him. That Jesus, the creator and redeemer, is the one who is able to make sense of the world. In him, all things hold together. It tells us that Jesus is the source not only of the existence of the universe, but also of its meaning. In other words, whatever other wisdom and knowledge you have in the world... You won't actually fully understand that. You won't really know what that means for you and for your life unless you bring it into relationship with the one who is himself wisdom. Uh, If uh, all things have been created uh, through him and for him, uh, then as Tom Wright puts it, then from whales to waterfalls, the whole created order has been in principle reconciled to God. From whales to waterfalls, it all matters to Jesus. It's all somehow about Jesus. It's all somehow for Jesus. And if all things have indeed been created for him, then they all need to be seen in relation to him, if we're really to understand what the meaning of any of it is at all. Science and philosophy can give us facts and insights, but in order to know what to do with those facts and those insights, how to integrate them into a life well-lived, we need to see whales and waterfalls and energy policy and friendship and marketing and poetry and carpentry and good wine, all in relation to this creator and redeemer. We need to see it all in relation to the creating and reconciling love of Jesus Christ. Only then will you actually understand what these things mean, why they matter, how they actually all connect together in a way that makes sense of life in this world. In him, all things hold together. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. True wisdom isn't a set of principles it's a person and you won't find it anywhere but in him. So don't go trying to add stuff to him. That's what this poem is here to teach us. It lifts our eyes to see Jesus on the grandest possible scale, forcing us to recognise that wisdom isn't knowing more than Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus more. True wisdom isn't about knowing more than Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus more. And so the obvious question is, um, how does that wisdom actually work itself out in our lives? How does that wisdom that's hidden in him become effective, if you like, actually do something? That's where we're going point two, the effectiveness of wisdom. And here we're going to dig into uh, just the next uh, kind of three verses or so. Uh, Colossians 1 verse 21. Uh, You who once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard. What do we make of this? How does this actually bring that wisdom to be effective in our hearts, in our lives? Uh, The disaster of sin coming into the world, uh, the failure of human beings to properly bear God's image to represent him in the world, uh, it made us, Paul tells us here, estranged and even hostile in mind. Uh, To put it in the kind of language of wisdom, it means that we've cut ourselves off from the very source of wisdom that would help us to live well even actively rejecting it. And so it's inevitable, actually, as far as the the Scriptures are concerned, that we've ended up doing evil deeds because we've cut ourselves off from the wisdom that actually, as Proverbs says in the the chapter we read before, uh, that the, um, the opposite of wisdom is to rejoice in doing evil. If you cut yourself off from the source of wisdom, evil is what will result. But here's something you've got to see about this wisdom who is not just a set of principles but a person. The very wisdom that we have rejected has himself reconciled us to God. The wisdom of God hidden in Jesus, you see, actually does something to us because wisdom is a person. It's a relational wisdom that actually changes the relationship between human beings and God. Uh, In Jesus, the wisdom of God has the effect of bringing people who were estranged from God back into alignment with his wisdom. Through his death, Jesus actually transforms us to begin to walk in wisdom again. And that transformation is effective both objectively and subjectively. It's effective objectively in that it actually changes our status before God. Christians drew our attention to this as we confessed our sins earlier. We have become the righteousness of God in him. Once estranged and hostile, the death of Jesus for us has made us now holy and blameless and irreproachable. If you trust Jesus, that is true about you, objectively. That's the reality about who you now are. God has changed us from the outside, if you like. He's done something to us objectively. Uh, Here's how Queen Elizabeth II once put it. It had to be something in the sermon, right, after the queen died this week. Here's how um, Queen Elizabeth once put it uh, with her uh, characteristic uh, uh, eloquent simplicity in one of her Christmas addresses about 10 years back. Uh, She said this. She said, although we're capable of great acts of kindness... History teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. And so God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. God sent a unique person into the world, not a philosopher or a general, but a saviour. Don't you love that? God, in his wisdom, decided not to send a philosopher. Don't you think a philosopher would make sense, right, You know, to kind of share some wisdom? That's not what we needed because just a philosopher can't actually change you, right? A philosopher can't make you live wisely. A philosopher can't make your life good. No, God sent us a saviour who is able to actually do something objective about our predicament, to be effective, this wisdom put to work in the world in order to make us right with God again. But the transforming wisdom of God in Jesus is also effective subjectively in our own experience. It has to be appropriated, it has to be worked out, it has to be grown into as the spirit works in us to change us and make us more like the one whose image we now bear, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes about it in these terms, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard. Uh, what Paul's talking about here is the ongoing work in the Christian life of bringing the wisdom of God and Jesus to bear on every other aspect of our lives, to be integrating it into the whales and the waterfalls and whatever, whatever else you spend your time talking about and doing and living and loving. It's not about adding to Jesus, not about, you know, Jesus has saved you, but now you've you, you got to be careful, you've got to go and do the right things now. No, no, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying what you need to do is to go deeper into the wisdom that is hidden in him because if Jesus really is as supreme and sufficient as we've seen, then we will never be able to exhaust the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in him. Again, what Paul is saying to us is that if you want to live well, if you want to have a full and good life, then what you need isn't to go beyond Jesus but to know him more and more and to allow the one to whom all things belong to have all of your life as well, all of your heart. Uh, the way to allow that objective transformation to work itself out subjectively in your life is to keep returning to Jesus and particularly to take uh, to pay attention to the shape of his own life, which shows us him being wisdom, embodying wisdom. It shows us what the shape of wisdom is. Sorry, point three. Uh, after showing us how the wisdom of God in Jesus is effective in transforming us, realigning us with that wisdom that our sin had cut us off from, Uh, Paul is on to speak about the shape that that wisdom is taking in his own life and in our life as well, as we, with him, make up the body of Christ, his his, uh, faithful church. And to be honest, what Paul says is pretty confronting. Uh, Let me read to you from verse uh, 24. I'm now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, I don't know if you're really paying attention, but if you're kind of paying attention, uh, it's kind of a bizarre little verse, to be honest. What the heck is he on about? Rejoicing in sufferings? That doesn't sound like wisdom. I mean, surely wisdom helps you to actually not have to suffer so much, right? Surely that's the good life. That's a life well lived. And is Paul really saying that there's something somehow insufficient about Christ's own sufferings? And even more, I mean, Paul, got tickets on yourself here. Somehow I'm going to make up for that lack. What was insufficient in Jesus, I'm going to somehow actually kind of fill that up, he says. That doesn't sound like wisdom. That sounds like, well, heresy, really, on the surface of it. What's going on here? Uh, Well, what's going on here actually is very close to the heart of the deep treasures of wisdom in Jesus that are so hard to get a grasp on and a hold of. It's something kind of obvious to say, but incredibly hard to accept and to live, which is precisely, I think, why it sounds so strange to us. The deep treasure of wisdom being uncovered for us here as Paul begins to speak about his own life and ministry is this, that the Christian life will have the same shape as Jesus' life, which means that wisdom that we find in him is going to lead to a life of suffering service, just as he suffered and served. Here's the irony about trying to live well in the world, right? We so often think that wisdom is really about avoiding suffering, about making everything turn out the way we want it to so that everything's okay and everyone will be fine keep calm and carry on, and carry on. all that. That's not what the scriptures say that, that, um, that wisdom is going to lead us into. Because the one who embodies the wisdom of God in his own person willingly walked into suffering. And as it goes for the head, so it goes for the body. If Jesus suffered, so will the church. Paul writes this letter, um, of course, from prison, probably in the city of Ephesus, uh, locked up once more for proclaiming this wisdom, actually, this Jesus, the wisdom of the cross, the one who died and rose for us, And he seems to view somehow his own suffering as a form of service, not only to God, but also to his sisters and brothers, for the sake of Christ's body, he says. Uh, It's almost as though, in a funny kind of way, he sees himself kind of attracting the attention of the enemies of God onto himself. So the Colossians over here can just have a little bit more space to kind of try and work things out a bit, to learn what it looks like to walk after Jesus, to learn how to live out their faith. His suffering service in the likeness of the suffering servant whose gospel he proclaims is the shape that the wisdom of God has taken in his life. And as for Jesus, so for Paul and so also for you and me, for the rest of his church. Uh, Here's the headline, if you like, about the shape of wisdom in your life and in the world. The wisdom of God won't spare you from suffering. If anything, actually, in a strange kind of way, it will increase your suffering. You'll feel the pains of the world more deeply because you know that all things have been reconciled to God and yet it doesn't look like it or feel like it, does it? And so you'll hurt more deeply. And you'll see your own failings more clearly too as you struggle not to be shifted from the hope promised by the gospel. You know what God has done for you objectively and yet subjectively in your life it doesn't always look so good. You'll feel that pain. That's a real struggle because it's actually often the suffering that we experience that I think leads us to search for something to add to Jesus, a Jesus plus kind of thing. I'm a Christian, but it doesn't feel that great, and so maybe there's something else that's going to help me. I think that's true for a lot of us. I think that suffering really can be one of the key drivers of a Jesus plus kind of wisdom. And yet when you read the scriptures, and to be honest, what I know of of you, of us as a community, you see that Christians in a strange way aren't really like that not when things are going going well for us at least, when we encourage one another, when we teach and admonish one another, as Paul says here in this passage, to walk with the Lord Jesus. Instead, Christians are the kind of people who don't shy away from suffering. We don't look the other way. Uh, We don't do everything in our power to avoid it. We weep with those who weep. We bear one another's burdens. We forgive as we've been forgiven. How is that wisdom? How does that make any sense? How can it be that all of this glorious wisdom in Jesus, the image of the invisible God, leads to suffering service in this life? Well, it makes sense, of course, because it's the way of the one in whom all things hold together. It gives existence and meaning to the entire universe because he reconciled the world to God through his own death and made peace through the blood of his cross. His suffering wisdom has the power to transform the world, to transform each one of us. And what that means actually is that just as it does for Paul, our own suffering can be transformed, you see, into a way actually further into the wisdom that we find in Jesus, into those treasures. When we experience suffering, we can know that he has suffered with us and we can know him more closely, more deeply. Suffering becomes an opportunity for us to lean into what Jesus has done for us instead of a way, to know the mystery that has been hidden through the ages, to know Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because the firstborn of creation was given over to death and became the firstborn from the dead. So that we can have a hope that endures even in suffering because we know there will be a day when suffering is no more as we share in the glory of the risen Lord. The wisdom, the deep treasures of wisdom and knowledge in the Lord Jesus, they won't shield you from suffering but they will transform it. Just as you bring all wisdom and knowledge into connection with the treasures hidden in Christ, so you'll also be able to bring your sufferings into connection with him. And so uh, you'll be more and more the kind of person who doesn't need uh, to keep your life looking spotlessly neat and tidy, making sure that it's all kind of neatly sealed off so that there's no rough edges, it's good, everything's good. And you'll be actually the kind of person who's able to enter into the mess and the hardship of meeting other people and their suffering. Their suffering won't, won't be a threat to you, right? Because you suffer and serve as the suffering servant has suffered and served you. And so you'll also be able to and more to open up your own mess and hardship to others, to let them see, actually, that you're not okay, that you are suffering. You'll be able to bear the loss of particular hopes and plans and dreams. Maybe you'll even be able to sacrifice some of those things that make up those inner-west visions of the good life that we've talked about, the education, the house, the income, the social status, whatever it is. And you might even do that for the sake of sharing with the saints and caring for one another in a community shaped by the wisdom of the cross. That's what it's going to do to you if you get this huge vision that Paul paints for us of who Jesus is in that poem at the start of of our section tonight. When you see Jesus in all of his glory, supreme, sufficient, he will transform you so that you can suffer and serve as he did. That's what our calling is as God's people. That's what our calling is as his uh, community, his church, here with one another. Let's pray that he would give us the power by his spirit to, to live it out. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us in Jesus. We would have nowhere to go, to be honest, if it wasn't for the fact that you've shared with us all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus. And what wisdom it is, wisdom uh, that doesn't promise to shield us from the hardships of life, uh, just as he, living out your wisdom perfectly in his life, wasn't shielded from hardship and suffering. Instead, Father, it opens us up to face those things, to walk into them, and to know that even when we uh, lose things that we want, things that we love that we have a hope in us, Jesus Christ himself, glory to look forward to. And so, Father, fill our hearts with this vision of the glory of the Lord Jesus, the one who was before all things, the firstborn over creation, the firstborn from the dead, the one who has reconciled all things to himself through the blood of his cross. Fill our hearts with that vision, Father, so that we might more and more be like him and so bring honour and glory to your name in the power of the Spirit.